Welcome to the Ad Nauseam Podcast, where classical gourmands everywhere can finally get their fill. Join us for a delectable discussion of Greco-Roman civilization stretching from the Minoans and Mycenaeans through the Renaissance and right down to the present. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here are your hosts, Dr. David Noe and Dr. Jeff Winkle. Welcome, listeners, to the Ad Nauseam Podcast. I believe this is episode 109. That, that, is, that is, is correct. That's right. My name is Dr. Jeff Winkle. I'm down here in the bunker with my good friend and co-host, Dr. David Noe. How are you feeling today? I'm doing pretty well, Jeff. Yeah. I am eager to discuss book eight of Virgil's Aeneid, uh, but we'll just have to see how the conversation goes here. Oh, you're, are you worried about something? Well, you know, sometimes there's not as much flow in the repartee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what you, that's what you're concerned about. Yeah, I think okay. you're going to have to carry this one on your broad, muscly shoulders. Oh man, well, thank you. I, I'll, I will do my best. All right. So um, we're talking book eight today. We're yes. Talking the, the second half of book eight, mm-hmm. um, and we're going to pick up some of the stuff we were talking about last time. This episode with with uh, Hercules and, right. and, and Cacus. And uh, I think there's a lot more to kind of to unpack there. Yes, I think so. Mm-hmm. And uh, we don't have a shout out. Again? Yeah. Okay. Is there anybody listening, I guess, is the question. Well, you know, we were just talking before you hit that record button that um, the numbers on the podcast have been uh, have been up. So people are listening. Should right? we inflate them like undergraduate grades? Oh, oh I see. I get, yeah, maybe we should do that. Just I mean, of, for the sake of, right now, for the sake of the listener, oh, should so we tell them there's some enormous number? Just completely lie about yeah. what they actually are. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, no, I don't think we should do that. But okay. um, I mean, all I'm trying to say is that those those um, bigger numbers, there's people out there, and right. most of them have not had shout outs. That's correct. So maybe they're just shy and reserved. That's good. Yeah. There's there's too much, um, I don't know, extroversion in this world. I get irritated with extroversion. I do too. Right. Let's yeah. let's uh, let's celebrate those who are shy and reserved. Exactly. So this non shout out is to all of you who didn't send in your name because you were too timid. Yes. Thank you for listening. Nothing to be afraid of. We want to celebrate you. That's correct. Because you know, at the end of the day, it's all about you. Is it all about them? I think it's all about them. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so um, so no shout out. Maybe yeah. next week we'll have one, but we'll see. And you're feeling you're feeling good, Jeff. I you're ready feeling, to do this. I didn't good. ask you. Yeah, I started a new semester this week, and that, that always is energizing. If I'm a away from the students for too long, I get a little twitchy Yeah, and I irritate, right. I irritate my wife and children. Oh, so I can't imagine. It's, it's good to get me out of the house. How about your friends? You irritate, irritate them? I, well, you tell me. Yeah. I, you find me mildly irritating. No, no, not, not really. at all. Okay. So you're teaching this semester classical yep. myth, I understand. Uh, yes, I have a world religions class. World religions. And what's the third one? It is uh, America cinema genres. America cinema genre. Yes. You're going to make them watch Apocalypse Now? I did last semester, not right. this one. But yeah, we do. You know, we watch war films, Western films. Comedies, tragedies, old school, silent—it's a lot of fun. Bridge over the river, Kwai. I haven't done that one yet, but that's that, okay. that's one of those that always makes like that top ten of all time. What what's a war film that you have them watch? Saving Private Ryan. That's what we're doing this semester. Okay. We've watched. Uh, I usually will show them a, a Vietnam film. We've right. Done Platoon, Full Metal Jacket, Apocalypse Now. Mm-hmm. But we're going to do Spielberg's uh, Saving Private Ryan. Interesting. So who I really feel bad for when I show that film is um, who's teaching next door. Because there's lots of explosions. Oh, there's a lot of noise going on in that right. movie. Right, so we don't yeah. have kind of an. It'd be nice to have kind of an isolated theater, but right. um, but uh, yeah, I'm here, gonna crank it up. Here, you could ask me if I've watched that, if I've seen that movie. Uh, have you seen Pri- Saving Private Ryan? Yes, I have. Okay, and wow. I thought it was a great movie. It is it's really it's, gripping in places. Wow, that that, um, that opening of uh, the landing at D Day is unbelievable, is unmatched. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fantastic stuff. All right, so should we just should we dive into this? I think stuff? we should because okay. we're talking war today. Here we are in book eight, mm-hmm. right? The last third of the epic to set the scene a little bit for the listener, uh, in case they haven't listened to the previous forty-eight episodes on the Aeneid. Mm-hmm. Aeneas and his men are in the region of Latium now. Yes, they are at the site of ancient Rome. They are um, at Arcadia with Evander, who is the king of the Arcadians, mm-hmm. and his son Pallas is going to figure prominently in the remainder of the epic. That's right. And uh, Jeff, can you fill the listener in on what just happened? What was the exchange between Evander and our hero Aeneas? Right. So Aeneas and his men make their way up the Tiber, and um, they're met by Pallas, and they're invited into this celebration that's already going on, and it's a celebration of, uh, of Hercules. And Hercules is a local cult hero for the Arcadians, 
and it's Evander which shows him kind of the location of where this um, this episode between uh, Hercules and the monster Cacus took mm-hmm. place, right? And so Cacus uh, stole the cattle that Hercules had stolen from the the, the creature Geryon, right? Which is one of his famous twelve labors. Yes. And while he was sleeping, uh, Cacus, I think um, in Virgil's version, he grabs four of them, right? yes, and then drags them away, pulls them backward into the cave, yes, their hooves being reversed, right. And therefore, it's supposed to conceal their location. Right. Throws them, throws, would throw Herc off the trail. That's right. Mm-hmm. He's not the brightest, I don't know, what, the brightest bulb in the constellation, something Her- like Hercules? that. Hercules? Yeah. Yeah. His, the, the punch of his heroism lies elsewhere. That's right. In his fists. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And here especially. So, uh, Heracles wakes up, he's driving the cattle away, and then he hears one of the lost um, cattle uh, lowing mm-hmm. in the cave. And he basically tears off the roof of the cave. That's right. And grabs Cacus out and beats him to death. Yep. He grabs the, what does he do? He twists off the top. He does. And uh, throws away the stump. He does. Exactly right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and it's a it's a violent, it's a, oh, it's, oh that's right. It was a Seinfeld reference there. Yeah, yeah thanks for catching catch it. it. Yeah, the muffin tops. Right. <laughs> Another little digression here. Yeah. A little known fact, uh, perhaps little known fact. Um, the ancient uh, church fathers, when they first began to be challenged and noticed um, by, you know, the intellectuals of Rome, um, and they were criticized saying, you know, your stories, that, that Hebrew Old Testament, is just a bunch of fairy tales and legends. They said, no, actually, our stories are the originals and the Greco-Roman myths are ripoffs hmm. of what we've done. Hmm. And in fact, the story of Hercules was inspired originally, they claimed, by Samson. Samson. Right. Yeah. And there are many, many uh, similarities between the two characters. There are. I think you do find, if you did kind of even a broader kind of comparative mythology, that, that the strong man hero um, is an archetype in the same way that the trickster is. Right? That's right. So I think, um, you know, um, Gilgamesh to some degree kind of falls yes. into the strong man archetype. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, definitely Samson and, and Heracles are, are, or Hercules are birds of a feather. Right. Mm-hmm. So when I asked our former colleague, Dr. Young Kim, yeah. who has been mentioned on the podcast a few times. Yeah. I asked him, uh, do you think there's any plausibility to that, you know, some historical link? And he said, well, it's interesting to me, and this is his area of specialty, that the apologists don't mention this, right? The Christian apologists don't mention this until they receive pressure from uh, pagan contemporaries. Hmm. So apparently before that, according to him, it hadn't really occurred to them to say the Greco-Roman myths are derivative of the scriptures it's uh, it just doesn't figure into the argument until later. That's interesting. Just to kind of expand upon that a bit, um, I think a, a fascinating thing that happens with Hercules is that um, Christian attitudes toward Hercules they thaw over time. Like mm-hmm. He be, he becomes he becomes not Christianized, but no. a, a figure who is um, sympathetic because of, of of his sufferings. Right? Yes. You know the famous kind of you know, he's given that that um, the 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 folk tale of Her- Hercules at the crossroads, right? Right. He's given this choice between a life of virtue or a life of vice. Yes, the two women that appear to him. Yes. And he has to choose between them. Right. And so he becomes kind of like a, a pilgrim's progress yes. um, uh, in, in every man. Right. And so in Heracles' sufferings and his temptations, I, I think the, um, some early Christians said, this is this is a character that we can sympathize yeah, with. Yeah, he's an right? archetype. Yeah. And uh, well, I think that's part of the development of the tradition generally. Early Hercules in the Iliad uh, is pretty much just the brute. Later, Hercules becomes not just um, brawn, but he becomes brain in some sense. Right, right, right. And so I think that kind of, um, you know, plowed the ground for appropriating him as a moral and ethical hero. Exactly. But that's also that's also sticky, too, because, um, you know, for the Greeks, uh, another part of uh, Heracles' persona was his comic persona, right? Mm-hmm. And he, you know, he, there was very, there was very few lusts that he didn't give into. That's right? correct. And so as far a, uh, from a Christian point of view, that makes a character very right. difficult to rehab. Well, what to do, you know, with the character of, is it Hillis, right? Which, uh, oh yes, exactly. Uh, the, when they're it? on the um, Argonaut, mm-hmm. when they're on the Argo, I mean to say, and he has to go off in search of this young boy mm-hmm. and so forth. Um, so yeah, Hercules, like you say, there were very few lusts that he did not indulge in. Right. But from a from a classical, from a literary point of view, he's a fascinating character. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think there's any other hero like him that like him that has so many uh, you know, feet in different arenas. Right? He's right. comic. He's tragic. He's a, he's a straight up Saturday morning uh, you know hero. Right. He's he's all of these facets in a way that I think not even like an Odysseus is. I think you're right. Yeah. He's dispatched to rescue Prometheus when chained to the rock. Right. 
So you need to conjure up a hero. Hercules is the guy. Yes, exactly right. And that in part explains, to bring it full circle, mm-hmm. why he's here in Aeneid Book 8. Right. It almost seems as though Virgil is looking for a, a slender, tenuous excuse to insert him into the epic. Yeah. Because if you're going to tell a Roman epic and outdo Homer, you have to mention each of the great characters at some point. Right. So here's a way to insert him into the story. Exactly. And we were talking a bit last time about this is um, uh, for many critics of the Aeneid. They puzzle over this, mm-hmm. this aspect, right? So, is it just kind of a, a token insertion into the into the story? Right. Because um, we, we were we were kind of going back and forth last time about okay, what's the underlying message here? Right. Right. And um, so Heracles, a, a violent hero, uses violence to kill this um, to kill this monster. Mm-hmm. And you are of the you know, from an ancient point of view, there's no problem with that, right? Don't, with the killing of the monster, right, no, exactly. And it's not and, immoral to kill a monster. No, was my main point exactly. So I think more of the questions around is what does Hercules, who does Hercules represent here? Yeah. And so, you know, how does it speak to kind of the larger themes of the Aeneid? Mm-hmm. And I think the, the opening quote here, um, I think, kind of gets at some of those issues. Right. So, and this is from David Quint. Yes. Um, who wrote this article um, about seven, eight years ago. Okay. And wow, that's recent. It's very recent. It's just like yesterday in classical terms. Right. So he begins... With a quote from actually book five, not book eight. Okay. And it centers around this this um, this figure of Eryx, mm-hmm. E-R-Y-X, who was a king of Sicily. He was a son of Venus um, uh, with her lover, Abutes, one of the Argonauts, yep. one of the lesser known Argonauts. And so thus he's a stepbrother right. of Aeneas, right? And we talked about this episode, right, of Eryx and Darius uh, yeah. during the funeral games of Anchises. Yeah, exactly, exactly. This extended boxing match. Yes, so um, the story, he goes on to be a boxer that challenges Hercules, and Hercules kills him. Right. So that I think that to some degree kind of raises an issue. So we have this this backstory of Hercules killing a son of Venus and a at least you know half relative of Aeneas. Right. And and so does that color the way we view Heracles in this scene in Book Eight? Hmm. He's already killed the son of the goddess, who's kind of you know. Um, who is the mother of our of our titular hero? Right. So, what does that mean? If it means anything. So, this at all? is the these are the strands that Quint is attempting to draw out. Right. So he has a quote here from um, Book Five, starting at uh, line four twelve. Yeah, let's hear that. Yeah. So he says, "What if one were to have seen the glove and arms of Hercules himself in the fatal match on this very shore? Your brother Eryx once bore these arms. You can see them stained here with blood and spattered brains. With these, he stood against mighty Hercules. So, in some ways, this this correlates to. What Evander is doing in Book Eight, he's saying, "Look, this is where th- this happened. You can see the, the right. landscape. You can see the place where Hercules slept." And that's right. And so it's a, a similar kind of travel log here. So I, I mean, um, I think we're both of the of the opinion that there's not much in the Aeneid that isn't deliberate. Right? Oh, right, right. So it, there's very little that's kind of you know accidentally or just kind of thrown in. That's correct. I mean, there are unfinished elements to the epic, um, but I would, I would, I think I'd be on safe ground saying that I think. Virgil would want us to read Book 8 against this because it's such a similar kind of Definitely. In- invitation. Definitely. Right. And a proper appreciation for literature, I would say, and just general charity, requires that you think the author does everything deliberately yeah. until proven otherwise. Absolutely. Yes. Well said. So Quint goes on. He says, In the myth that lies behind this passage, Eryx, the son of Venus, and hence half-brother to Aeneas, either steals a runaway bull from the herd of Hercules or covets the cattle. He challenges or is challenged to a fight with Hercules and loses his life. So right there we have, he's doing what uh, Cacus does. Cacus does, right. right. Um, Perhaps his are among the brains and blood splattered on the gloves. In some versions, this contest is more of a wrestling than a boxing match, and hence a mythical repetition of Hercules' defeat of Antaeus. We should mention what that is. So Antaeus is the Libyan monster lives down in North Africa, and he is the one who, you know, being a son of, he's a giant, actually, a son of the earth. Mm -hmm. Whenever he touches the earth, he regains his strength. So Hercules now, using some brains, not mere brawn, has to hoist Antaeus over his head and squeeze the life out of him. Oh, that's right. Because if ever he touches the ground... He regains all of his strength and is more than a match for Hercules. That's that's great, exactly. So, so it's a, it's a variation on like the um right the the heads of the Hydra. Yes, Hercules has to figure out. Well, I cut one off and two grow back. What am I going to do? <laughs> that's right, right, right. So he gets out his soldering iron and and fixes it that way. Yeah, and speaking of Samson, you know his strength tied to the length of his hair. Yeah, there's, a, there's kind of a slight thematic. You mean to the as well. to the notion of Antaeus? Well, the idea of um, you know the the uh, I could like you cut off the Hydra's head and you cauterize them. And oh, more I see grow what back. you're saying. The longer Samson's hair gets, the stronger he gets. What? Uh, I don't know if it's the stronger he gets. I don't want to you know quibble. 
but it is kind of my specialty. Yes, quibble away, please. <laughs> if his hair is not long, he doesn't have the strength. There, okay, there you go. But I don't think, you know, if it's hanging down to his waist, he's twice as strong as... But anyway. That's the way I like to tell it. Okay, right? exactly. you can tell it like you want. <laughs> all right. So, Samson's... It's just like the big man bun okay, on top. All right. All right. Yeah, no, all right. Uh, Quint uh, going on here. So Virgil appeals appears sorry to recall this latter combat when Evander tells the, how the hero squeezes the life out of Caucus. So Evander's celebration of the deliverer Hercules at the Ara Maxima might be tempered for Aeneas by the sobering memory that the same Hercules had killed one of his brothers. So there's the kind of the complication. So okay. if we're meant to identify, if Aeneas is meant to kind of identify with the triumph of Hercules as kind of a model for the Roman triumph to come, how do you explain kind of this idea that the same guy killed one of his relatives? Right. right. His half-brother. Yes. Same mother. Caucus. Again, this is Quint here. Caucus, however monstrous, is also Aeneas' stepbrother. Evander is himself largely modeled on Homer's Nestor, whose whole family, father, and 11 brothers were slain by Hercules. In one version of the story, Hercules killed them because they, too, stole the same cattle of Garion. What is it about these cattle of Garion? <laughs> I don't know. Every, they're magnificent. They must be Black Angus or uh, what's oh. that Japanese oh, the, beef? The, the Kobe beef. Yeah, it's Wagyu or something like that. Yeah. Each, each cow is delicately massaged every day by a, you know, an appointed assistant. How would you like that to be your job? The no, cow, thanks. The cow massager? Cow no. massager, no thanks. <laughs> I've spent a lot of time around cattle. Yeah, that's but, right. That's yeah. right. Um, but yeah, they must be they must be something because everybody wants them. Right. Yeah. So in the Metamorphoses, Quint goes on, Ovid's Nestor, mourning his family, declines to praise Hercules in his account of the Battle of the Lapis and Centaurs. Roman readers of the Aeneid may have similarly looked upon Augustus, the Herculean savior of their country, as they remembered their own relatives who had perished on the other side during the Civil War. Okay, so here it is he, then, the, right? The, here's, I think, here where, it is. Here's the, where Quint loses you, right? Yes. Yes. The, the final <laughs> sentence here. Everyone is is uh, pushing as quickly as they can to uh, introduce a revisionist idea into the interpretation of the Aeneid. So th- this, you say this is bunk. Well, it's just kind of surprising, right? That post-enlightenment individuals all happen to find in the story of the Aeneid um, Virgil's obvious, they would say, criticism of the Augustan regime. Mm-hmm. I'm not defending the Augustan regime. Yeah. I'm no fan of totalitarianism, which is what Augustus seems to have instituted. Sure. But I just think it is highly implausible that this was uh, Virgil's secret motive all along, and no one notices it until the late 20th century. <laughs> For example, the first time I was introduced to um, Dante, uh, I found out that Brutus and Cassius, you know, as well as Satan, are in the lowest circle of hell. Brutus and Cassius are down there with Satan? Oh my gosh. And do you know why? Why? Because uh, Dante believed that uh, Julius Caesar instituted, you know, inaugurated a golden age, Mm. that Roman imperialism was something good yeah, and brought peace and allowed for the spread of Christendom. And, you know, Dante's, I'm, I'm being a little bit loose here with my description. I'm not a Dante scholar, but I think what I'm saying is generally true. And so those whom I would consider, you know, heroes of self-government, Brutus and Cassius, are actually the villains in Dante's eyes. Oh, that is so interesting. Because they, they killed off the guy that, you know, started something so wonderful, the right. Roman Empire. Right, 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 right. Exactly. How different than the way we typically think of it. Definitely, definitely. So, yeah, I'm sorry, Quint, you lost me there. Roman readers of the Aeneid, he says, may have similarly looked upon Augustus, the Herculean savior of their country, as they remembered their own relatives who had perished on the other side during the Civil Wars. The other problem with this interpretation, if you'll allow it. Please. Is that, was Augustus so stupid that he could not see this as criticism when Virgil, you know, wrote it and then it was, uh, parts of it were read to him? Mm-hmm. Was Augustus so stupid and, and only people in the late 20th century have figured it out? Because Augustus continued patronizing and supporting right. um, Virgil. Right. I mean, it's plausible there could be minor criticisms and he would continue to support him as a poet. Well, that's... that's if the thing as a whole, though, yeah. is meant to undercut... Mm-hmm. His program, how, how could he be happy with that? Right. Well, I, I've also heard the, the argument that, uh, yeah, so you know, why would Augustus you know, go on and, and publish this thing? The explanation is, well, uh, Augustus was an enlightened leader. And he was... But I thought he was an autocrat well, who destroys everybody. Well, this, which, I mean, which is it? This is, I mean, this is another angle. Yeah. Um, and that he was okay with the criticism because he wasn't so petty as that. 
And yeah, so, well, I, this seems to so, beg the question. I, th- I think there's a middle path. Okay. I think there's a middle path, right? So, you know, one of the famous the famous quotes from the Iliad that, you know, such a great thing it was to, to found the Roman Empire. Like such a, from the Aeneid, you mean? Uh, for, sorry, from the Aeneid, right. right. Um, that uh, it, it was a monumental task, and right. it was a difficult task, right? I think you could you could easily see that, okay, you can take this idea, but you don't have to push it to this to this link, that it's right. a, a criticism of Augustus, but recognizing that, this great prize, um, the greatness of Augustus, came at a great cost of blood. Yes, and you can end it there. Right. You don't have to go on and say that. Well, you know, some of these relatives they recognize that Augustus is successful, but they're still kind of they're upset about their dead relatives who fought on the other side. And, yeah. And it's kind of a, a, a mixed bag. Hmm. Right. So. Okay. So uh, you strike. You're trying to strike the middle path. Yes, here. I'm. I'm with you, but uh, I think. I think yes. I think this. This argument, uh, Quinn's argument, kind of falls apart in this last sentence of this paragraph. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. What else do we learn from it then? Um, what do we learn from it? I think that one of the things I really like about Virgil, um, is that I think he's a lot more complicated than I think he's often given credit for. Okay. And so I think that the idea that the kind of the messiness of the, of Hercules backstory, you know, he killed Eryx. Um, uh, Aeneas is, is who who is not a monster by the way. Right. So that one is not excusable in terms of the, um, you know, the idea that I've set up. Right. And it says, as Quint says here, you know, Cacus, however monstrous, is also Aeneas' stepbrother. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that 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 idea that you know, the Heracles story is messy. He's involved in the killing of of people that were related to Aeneas, that were the children of Venus. Right. I think that makes uh, it. I think those ca- those make for very interesting questions. Like, so what? What does that mean? And it's not just kind of this cut and dried. Um, you know, Dudley do right marching towards his destiny. Okay, I think that's interesting. Right, and so that adds to your appreciation of Aeneas. I do. I, I, it does, or, or to um, to Virgil. I, I mean, I still have mixed feelings about Aeneas as a hero. Right, he's a little mopey for my taste. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think for Virgil's artistry, uh, he's saying that the you know founding the Roman Empire and Augustus being who he was is not a cakewalk. Right, fair enough. All right, Dave, before we dive into the next section, there was a, a corrigendum you wanted to get to from last week. Yes, I think this is important. So last week when you were reading some Lombardo, there was a line about amazing to see or something along those lines. And I said, oh, that's probably Mirabile Wisu. That's probably the supine. Yeah. And I looked it up afterward and no, it's not. It's Mirabile Dictu. Ah, okay. So for those of you who are keeping score at home, specifically with respect to Latin, you have to mark me down a few points there. Okay. I got you. Yeah, you... you. Uh, you, you took one for the... I took one for the team. For the team, yeah. That's right. You like? Do you like a good supine? I do like a good supine. Yeah, yeah with some crumble some crackers into it, oh, maybe. It's and, the uh, best, right. Yeah. So, and your, the supines, are they're usually dictu or wisu. That's correct. So there, there's two kinds of supines. Yeah. If we're going to digress a moment. It's a defective fourth declension noun mm-hmm. that occurs in only two cases, the accusative and the ablative. The accusative is used with verbs of motion to express purposes. Mm. So I could say, for example, uh, Romam, mm, how should I say, Romam visum aides um, <clears throat> eo. I'm going to Rome to see the buildings. Okay. Right? That's the accusative with a verb of motion to express purpose. The supine is also used in the ablative for descriptive purposes like this, right? Yes. Mirabile visu, amazing to see. Mirabile dictu, amazing uh, to say. It could be something like, um, I don't know, miserabile, miserabile auditu, uh, pitiable to hear. Yeah. I think when people listen to the podcast, that's <laughs> yes, miserabile <laughs> auditu. Auditu, That's right. what they hear. So those are the supines. Have you ever come across like a uh, wonderful to smell? I haven't. No. But uh, the verb to smell is olfakio. Yeah. So it would be um, what? Um, olfaktu. Yeah. Olfaktu. W- wonderful in the smelling. Yes. I like that. No, I haven't come across it. Right. Now, just another uh, kind of uh, uh, sub uh, section of, of sure. this digression. Um, you've seen Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Yes, I have. Right. And one of the, the one of the places in, in the in the movie where I I decided okay, I really like this is, is early on where you have. The blind old guy in the handcart who's kind of our yes, right? That's right. And he tells he tells George Clooney in his palace, he says, You're gonna see oh so many startlements, wonderful to tell. Yeah. And I say, Okay, these guys did their homework. Yeah. They, they, they know. put they put a supine in there. Yeah, that's yeah. right. <laughs> it's wonderful awesome. in the saying. In the saying. Yeah. Yep. That's great. Right, so where are we going from here? Well, we're gonna carry on here with what happened after Evander ended his long tale about Hercules and what Aeneas experienced next. Okay. So he um so the celebrations of Heracles go on. Uh, they uh, they sing a hymn of praise. Um, Evander kind of takes uh, Aeneas on a little bit of a kind of a history tour of, yes. of, of the area. A little bit of a walking tour. Right. He mentions the kind of the, the golden age under Saturn, and I think this is all reflective of um, 
you know, they're in Arcadia. Evander's kingdom is very rustic. They're very right. close to nature, and mm-hmm. so they're they're kind of closer to that original, pure, perfect golden age. Yes, they're right? unspoiled. Right. It's similar to the way that Anchises guides Aeneas through the underworld. Now, Evander is guiding Aeneas through the world of the future, you might say. Right. These will be your domains. I'm going to hand the reign over to you, in, in a sense. And this is where Rome will be situated. Do you think that's the main point of this episode? Because in some ways, so in the underworld, um, Anchises gives Aeneas a view of the future, right? Yes, because so there's the Valley of Souls. Here right. are all of the Romans yet to be born. They're going right. to be sent down the pneumatic tube and deposited in their bodies and lead their famous lives. Yes. And then also, as we've seen in previous books, um, Aeneas meets King Latinus, right. right? And it's his daughter that's going to be kind of the the royal, the, kind of the marriage into which you'll kind of become royalty. Yes, Lavinia. So, and the, but then, you know, so how does Evander fit into that? Do you think it, it's this, like, okay, this, it's a kind of a geographical uh, kind of tie? I think it's partly that, but I would also suggest, uh, as we discussed last week, it is a way for Virgil to humanize Aeneas and to bring him into the Italian landscape as more than just a conqueror. Mm. Here, oh, here's yeah. here's a way to show that he belongs here, as in the way that uh, the father of the Tiber, right, Potter Tiberinus, uh, in the last episode, greeted him in that dream and said, we've been waiting for you. Mm-hmm. Now, Aeneas is, is uh, shown to be someone who really fits here. He belongs here. He doesn't have to uh, roll roughshod over all of the indigenous uh, peoples, right? They want him there. He belongs. Right. There's natural allies for Correct. him there. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. I like that. I like that explanation a lot. Um, so yeah. So Evander shows Aeneas around his land. He tells him a, lo- a number of backstories. I think there's a bit of uh, fan service for for uh, oh, yeah. for the Romans here. It's like you know this is where where this is. so we get you know sites where future famous events are going to take Correct. place, right? Correct. And so I think it, it fits very well within Caesar's um, you know, giving Aeneas kind of the vision of the future. So he kind of gave showed them the people. Now Evander's kind of showing okay, this is the, this is the place right. where these things are, um, you know, have happened and will happen. Right. But Aeneas is missing something, isn't he? In order to be the great conquering hero, yeah, he's missing good armor. Good armor. Why, why, why wouldn't he bring this with him from Troy? And, and he, well, he doesn't have divine armor. No, he does right. not. He needs to. He needs to transform to, into Achilles. Correct. Right. And he's so, got to have his little moment of montage. Yes, exactly. So, um, before we get into that, though, would you read a little Latin here and, and um, say a few more things about kind of this tour? Yes. That Evander gives from like from three forty two on. Sure, so picking it up at 342. Hinc lucin gentem quem Romulus acer asilum, retulit et gelida monstrat subrupa lupercal, par ratio dictum pa nos de mora lecaii, nec non et sacri monstrat nemus ar gileti. Testatur quelocet letum docet hospitis argi, hinc ad tarpe am se det capitolia ducet, Ardrea nunc olim silvestribus hordreda dumis. Very nice. I like those last lines there, That's right? Nice. Yeah. The golden, now golden, once shaggy with uh, woodsy shrubs. Yes, exa- exactly. Good. And here's Lombardo's translation of those lines. It says, Next he showed a vast grove, which Romulus later would make a refuge, showed him to the Lupercal, a cave beneath a cold cliffside with the Arcadian name of Lycian Pan. Then he showed him the wood of holy Argiletum, and calling the place to witness, recounted the death of Argus, his guest. And from here, Evander led him to Tarpeia's home in the capital, golden now, but then bristling with thickets. And a little bit more here. Even then, the religious power of this place awed the country folk. Even they shuddered at the woods and stones. Interesting. Yeah. So this is a tour of the uh, Capitolium, right? Mm-hmm. In the Tarpeian Rock, from which uh, Tarpeia was thrown down. Yes. You can read uh, all about this in the... Um, the history of Livy, right? Uh, Pre-Republican Rome and, and uh, archaic and legendary Rome. Right. And a rock which became the site of executions for the Romans. That's correct. Yes. Because of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I love this too. It, I mean, a, a lot of this stuff is, again, kind of purely Roman, purely Italian. Right? Yes. I there's mean, nothing Greek here. There's, men, there's a mention of Pan and, and Argus, but it's it's Romulus. It's Tarpeia, right? And it's, right. It, it's all about kind of the locality. And I think it goes back to what you were saying is that... Um, Aeneas belongs here. He's right. being in, invited into almost kind of the secrets of the place. Yes. Do you think Achilles ever felt at home around the walls of Troy? Um, I don't think he did. No, no. No. He had his tent, right? He had his canoe, whatever it was. He was little... glamping, as we said, many, he was many glamping months ago. was glamping many, many months ago. Seems like a, eons ago. Yes. But he was not at home. No. And he was an invader. So Aeneas is meant to appear not as an invader, uh, but someone who is engaged in a homecoming. Right. Is it persuasive? 
Well, I think it remains to be seen. Okay. Right? Um, I think uh, the, one of my problems with, of course, Aeneas as a hero is that he, he always seems to keep everyone and everything at, at arm's length. You know, the extreme uh, the extreme example being with what happened with Dido. So what would you like? You want him to cry more often? I don't want him to cry, but I would maybe some fist bumps. Okay. And maybe, you know, um, taking part in the in the dancing and the singing, right? And just so the stuff isn't just happening around him. He's actually doing these things. So it's so. his stoicism that you don't like? Um... I think that, you know, if indeed these passages are about uh, and he's being invi- invited in, right? I would like to see him more. Like, so, like, one of the corollaries I saw with, with, um, with Homer, um, it, Evander with Aeneas it reminds me a lot of Eumaeus and Odysseus. Yes, right? this is book 14, 13, 14 in yeah. the Odyssey. Yeah, which, and I love those scenes. And part of, one of the things I love about it is that Eumaeus, is, he's very simple, he's very rustic, very much like Evander. Um, but he, uh, Odysseus kind of is invited into his home. Yeah. And in, in Odysseus, he really seems to be- belong there. Odysseus loves Eumaeus. Yes. And so I would love to see just a, a little bit more warmth. Okay. So here are, you know, two <laughs> counter arguments. Yeah. The first is Eumaeus and Odysseus had a prior relationship. Of course. Of and course. Uh, Evander and Aeneas do not. Second is um, Odysseus lies all the time. Right. That is his trademark. Is mm-hmm. You don't even know in that story whether he's telling the truth. And he tells the backstory that I'm not Odysseus, he says to Eumaeus, because he's still in disguise. But I met Odysseus on my travels. Aeneas never tells a lie. Mm. Right. And if the mm. hero uh, by nature and constitution cannot be dishonest then maybe it's going to be harder to appreciate him as a human being. Well, that's well said. That, I find that I do you, find that, do you find I find, that appealing. I do, I do find that uh, so, um, maybe not appealing, but I find it per, uh, persuasive. Okay, so yeah. if Aeneas here had shaded the truth in some ways, you would find him a more appealing character. I I, I don't know. I don't think I, I need him to lie to do that. If he's being brought to a place where we meant to see him more at home. I would like to see him more comfortable. He, Aeneas always seems to me just kind of just an outsider in okay. everything that he does. Mm. And so, I, I mean, we'll, I mean we'll, we'll keep an eye on this as, if, if this changes. I mean, it's, it's right. early in, in, his, um, in his time in Italy. But yeah. he, just, he just seems so, it's, and I don't see it as kind of his stoicism. I see it just okay. kind of as his being an outsider. Well, I, I think that these are, what's, these are the items that separate Odysseus from Aeneas. Odysseus cries a lot, mm-hmm. and he lies a lot. Mm-hmm. Aeneas cries, but he doesn't lie. Right. Okay. Okay. All right. Which raises the question: Why? Let's keep an eye. Cry. Why? why? Lie. Right. That's it. I don't know. Well, we'll just let's somehow he'll get by. Okay. <laughs> All right. And other things I liked about um, this passage is that um, you know there's the mention. He says, you know, the capital, it's golden now. Right. But back then it was bristling with thickets, and so this idea that you know the the, the architectural wonder of Rome under Augustus has these very kind of humble but golden age uh, underpinnings. Yes. It's literally golden now, but, that's correct. but it was founded upon a place that was representative of the golden age. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So he's kind of drawing these, it's nature and civilization um, all together. Right. Yeah. Speaking of uh, bristling with thickets, yes. it's time for the ads. Let's do it. This episode of Ad Nauseam is brought to you by Racial Coffee. With headquarters in Portland, Oregon, Mark Helweg, this entrepreneur, has been bringing wonderful coffee to the masses for quite a while now. And let's face it, Jeff, yeah. friends don't let friends drink brackish tang. Am I right? That is very, very true. Okay. Exactly right. So um, do you know a little bit about Mark? How did he, maybe just very quickly, how did he come to be yeah. the brewmaster? Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, I've told the story before, but one thing about this podcast that we love is repetition. Yes, we do. And what's another thing that we love? Well, we like repetition. There you go. Yeah. So Mark <laughs> was an undergraduate uh, student of the liberal arts, mm-hmm. first at an institution where I taught in Virginia. And then uh, he graduated from Hillsdale College here in the uh, state of Michigan, mm-hmm. and uh, he was selling coffee. He had the, uh, the 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 Clive Coffee Company, which is doing really well. And he noticed that the coffee machine, the home coffee maker, hadn't really improved in some time. And he thought, well, I can fix this. Yeah. So he studied the Italian espresso machines and the other kinds of you know barista wonders, and he began. Uh, with no engineering training, just that's incredible. By, that's know, incredible. Yeah, the dint of genius and hard work to say, let me develop my own premium home coffee maker as an automatic pour over. Fantastic. And the results of that are these uh, two wonderful machines: that's the Ratio right. Six and the Ratio Eight. Yes. Um, both of us, we, we each have the eight on our counters at that's home. 
right. And they're beautiful machines. Um, and every morning, the, the perfect cup of coffee. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I was out of the home this morning uh, having my coffee somewhere else. And it was a good cup. It was an excellent cup. It came out of one of those machines with a little, you know, pouchy kind of oh, yeah. sort of things. I and know them put, well. Right. And yeah. it, it was okay. But then when I got home, I thought, that's not going to do it. No. I, I need some really good coffee. So I quick brewed up a batch in my uh, Ratio 8 with the oyster and the walnut accents, and it was fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah, I've got the stainless steel model. It's uh, it, it's great. So, listener, do yourself a favor. Go to RatioCoffee.com. That's R-A-T-I-O Coffee.com. Uh, check out these machines and their accessories. Um, uh, our offer here, if you you pick one or both of those machines, um, you uh, put them in your little basket and you put in this code. Yes. Can I say the code? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. The code is A-N-C-O. That's Ad Nauseam Coffee. A-N-C-O-K-5. And right. the K stands for kickback. Kickback. That's right. Because if you buy a machine, <laughs> it keeps this podcast going. Yes. Right. So A-N-C-O-K-5. And Jeff, what do they get? They get uh, 15% off their entire order. You definitely want to check this out. Yes. This episode of Odd Nauseam also brought to you by the good folks at Hackett Publishing. Hackett Publishing now for 51 years with their offices in Cambridge, Massachusetts and Indianapolis, Indiana, have been uh, putting out um, wonderful editions and translations of books from the the classical studies, but also many other corners of academia. Um, I love their stuff. I'm using the Lombardo translation of the Odyssey in my myth class right now, and I have been for many years. And, yes. And for uh, I don't see myself giving it up. No. Why would you give up a wonderful idiomatic translation that comes in at an affordable price? It's yes. a good value. It is. All you folks out there studying STEM with your chemistries and your mathemologies and your biologies, you people with your engineering degrees. All are, these people. Right. Who yeah. are going to you know make the world safe and convenient and, <laughs> and healthy and all those wonderful things that we love so much. Yeah. Your textbooks cost two or $300 just for the first half. It's ridiculous. Right? Yeah, why don't you study philosophy and literature and get your books from Hackett? Exactly. Exactly. And, and even there, my humanities students will complain about the cost of even like the paperback textbooks. It's, it's criminal out there. But if you look, if you compare to what Hackett offers, right. there, that's where you got to go. That's right. That's the sweet spot. It is the sweet spot. And it's about to get sweeter because... Why? Why? Because... If you go to HackettPublishing.com... Oh, this part. Yes. Right. Right. This is the whole point of the ad, oh, Jeff. Oh, that's right. I forgot. And you find the books that you want and mm-hmm. you drop them in your little grocery satchel and you get to the checkout counter, mm-hmm. right? And you scan your items and they go beep over the little red eye. Then what happens? Then you type in the coupon code. Yes. Uh, which is A N. Two zero two three. That's correct. For the and new what, year. What does that get them? Oh, this is great. This is the, this is the best part. Okay. Uh, that gets you uh, two wonderful things: twenty percent off your entire order and free shipping. That is incredible. So what you're saying is that the listeners who want to expand their library and support this podcast mm-hmm. should go to HackettPublishing.com and enter that coupon code. That's exactly what they should do. All right, check it out. All right, Jeff. So as we get back into this, yes. where are we headed next? Well, um, we, you had mentioned that one of the things that Aeneas lacks is uh, is proper armor. That's correct. And so he got he has to get some uh, divinely made weaponry, particularly a shield. Yes, he's got no red cape, no blue underwear, no, no. green boots. No, not none of that kind of stuff. Yes. Right. And just like uh, for Achilles, you yes. got to go to the the, the Smith God. You right. got to go. So um, Hephaestus famously makes Achilles shield, and I think it's book eighteen of the Iliad. Yes, and who who is it that prompts him to do that? Uh, to, to to prompts Achilles to get the shield. No, no. Oh, who what? is it that prompts Hephaestus that to make you know make this armor for? Her son, there, I've given it away. That's right. It would be uh, Thetis. Yeah, it'd be silver-footed Thetis, mm-hmm. right? The goddess of the sea, one of the Nereids. And she goes to him and speaks to him persuasively and says, my kid needs some armor. Yeah. Did your mom ever buy you any sports equipment or, you know, fit you out in things you needed? Yeah, it was all used, right? I mean, my, my mom wasn't going to well, any we, of faces. We don't yeah. need to go down the road of bitterness here, sorry, Winkle, sorry, sorry, childhood you, memories. You opened the door a crack and I kicked it open. Yeah, your mom is listening too, it's, right? Okay, she's saying... I think we're safe. She's yeah. she's saying, it wasn't used, a bunch of new stuff. <laughs> right. But this is a natural thing. You yeah. want your kid to be well-equipped if he's yes. going out onto, you know, the, the rugby field or the tennis court, or in this case... Um, all of the plains and mountains of Italy where he'll be killing lots of his enemies. It's true. It's it's uh, Doesn't it strike you as a little bit of kind of helicopter parenting here? I mean, it's, it's one thing of buying me cleats for my 11th, my, my uh, you know, age 11 soccer team. Okay. Uh, isn't Achilles and Aeneas maybe a little old to have mom taking care of this business? I don't know. Um, or is it, it, that's presentism, isn't it? Is it, is it am I, am I, uh, maybe. 
But these are these are divine ladies, yeah, right? Here's the, here's the difference. Okay. If, if your mom could bring you cleats that had uh, you know wings on them, Ooh, that'd be cool. cleats that would turn you into uh, you know the recently departed Pele, yes, or one of those individuals, or Peel, as I heard someone pronounce it. <laughs> nice. Uh, I corrected that, of course. <laughs> Good. Um, wouldn't you take her up on that offer? Well, of course. Okay. Okay. Right. 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 Yeah. So I was just I was just wondering. You know, Achilles is. I thought maybe be a little bit too old for mom. Mom's constantly kind of. Uh, He's a mama's boy. He is totally a mama's but boy. But if Venus were your mother, right? Right. The, the goddess equipped with all of these abilities, who could refuse? Right. Okay. All right. Fair enough. All, all right. right. So, so she goes to Vulcan. Right. Uh, for a similar kind of favor. Right. Now, um, now there are some issues here. Okay. That we don't find in the Iliad. Right. So, be, I think because of you know the connection between uh, Venus and Rome. And this is a very different kind of story that Virgil's telling. Um, so um, now, now Vulcan is her husband. Yes, am I right? Right, and it's it's not a match made in uh, in, in heaven. No, it is the original Beauty and the Beast, but without the happy ending. Beauty right? and the Beast has a happy ending. Yeah, did the Beast like turns? Like, I thought the Beast ate the princess. I don't uh, remember. The, oh, I, I'd watch that. Is that the Disney version? <laughs> I don't think so. Okay. So um, no, it's it's a, it's a syrupy kind of you know weirdo uh, romance, right? Okay. So but we, we so don't, he's hideous. Yes. And good at things. Mm-hmm. She's lovely and good at nothing. Um, who are we talking about now? Venus. Be- Venus is good at lots of things. Well, not really. She can make people fall in love with one another. What? That's she, like the greatest power that you can have. Yeah, but that's all she does. Okay. She's got no other powers. She, she can't make <laughs> coffee or a burrito. That's all she's got. Gotcha. All right. All right. Uh, and she drives a chariot pulled by doves. Yes. Yeah, that seems very impractical. Not even Tesla could do that. <laughs> pulled by doves. Man, some physics problems there. And, I would say. Yeah, exactly. And you're not breaking like ten miles an hour. No, right? no, <laughs> no, right. So, um, so, the, but there's a very different dynamic here. So, you know, Thetis, the mother of Achilles, is she's not you know, married to Hephaestus. She's not a lover of Hephaestus. It's a different. It's a different vibe. And I don't think she really uses feminine wiles. No, to get she just seems to get the armor out of Hephaestus. As a favor, yes. friendship. Yeah, we're not really told, are we? What, not, the, what the motivation is? Why Hephaestus should indulge this request? He sympathizes with Achilles for some reason. I don't know, but right. yeah, I don't. I don't remember that being kind of a uh, you know, front loaded in that in no. that episode. But here with uh, Beauty and Beast, right? Right. Venus and Vulcan. Mm-hmm. What is the uh, what is the score? Well, here. So part of the problem here is that again, if if. Um, Virgil, as I think he does, wants us to be reminded of Homer mm-hmm. in so many different ways. Um, you know, who could not think of the episode of the Song of Demodocus amongst the Phaeacians where he tells the story of the affair between Aphrodite and Ares, right? Yes, where they were caught in flagrante delicto. Yes, by, by Hephaestus with, right. his, with his, his magical net. Yes, the husband who sneaks in and pulls the net over them mm-hmm. and uh, then invites all the other gods in to mock their behavior of adultery. Right, exactly. Which is so interesting to me, if I may just say, mm-hmm. because while all of the gods engage in adultery and philandering mm-hmm. whenever they have the opportunity... When one of them is caught in it, it's a cause of derision. Right. Well, they, 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 find, it, they find it very funny. You know, Hermes is making jokes. And you remember, the only god that takes it seriously as a moral matter is Poseidon. Yeah. And he says he's going to make sure that, you know, um, restitution is paid. Yeah. It's not clear why Poseidon's upset. No. Uh, but it throws a wrinkle into, into that whole story, mm-hmm. too, because, of course, Poseidon is the god that is, you know, hounding um, Odysseus. That's right. Right. Um, so, but it's it's weird here because we know if you know your Homer, you know how kind of how that relationship turned out. Yes, right? they were they were put together by someone, right? Vulcan and Venus. Uh, yeah, it wasn't a natural attraction. No, but that's the incongruity that's supposed to make us wonder, right? The most hideous god is married to the most beautiful goddess. Right. It's incongruity. It's incongruity. But she, she winds up with Ares, which in terms like on, on paper is a much better fit. Yeah, but she winds up with a lot of people. Well, that's true. Right? But I mean, in terms of like, you know, it's... I get it. Prom queen dates the football captain. Right. Right? You know, Ares is the dumb jock. It's a better It's a better fit. Mm-hmm. Um, so Vulcan, Venus going to Vulcan. Dumb jock. Is this more historical bitterness on your part, Winkle? Uh, there might be. You've pulled back uh, All right. inadvertently a number of layers here. Right. Um, so we know how that marriage turns out. Um, we just learned in the text that Vulcan is the father of Caucus, right? So does does that add a wrinkle? Are we? Am I finding stuff that's not here, Dave? I mean, is, I can't say. Okay, I can't say. I don't really. Not because I don't really know. I just don't want to say. <laughs> no, I'm not sure. Okay, I, it's not persuasive to me, Quint, and others aside. That Caucasus' distant relationship to Aeneas really has anything to do with the plot. Yeah. All of these individuals are related. Right. In some way. Right. 
Okay. Yeah. So um, I mean, I think it's much more believable um, that, you know, as opposed to Thetis and Hephaestus, that Venus would use her feminine wiles to get right. to do what she wants. And I think that's very straightforward. So maybe all these right. other questions aren't even like, even worth asking. I don't know. But A, she's Venus, mm-hmm. right? So she's the most beautiful person imaginable. And secondly, she has a relationship. She's married to Vulcan. Right. And I guess that never completely goes away despite all of the infidelity on her part. Right. Which which is not mentioned here. I, I, I mean, maybe it's even foolish to try to put a chronology on this. Like all this stuff happens before she has an affair with Mars. Yeah, we don't uh, really know. We don't know. These chronological concerns, they're not important. They're not important at all. To right. Virgil. Exactly. So how does Vulcan respond? All right. Let me give uh, Lombardo's translation here. It says, Vulcan hesitated. But when the goddess wrapped her snowy arms around him and fondled him in her soft embrace, he felt the familiar heat flash through his bones, like lightning splitting a thunderhead, a crackling flash in the rumbling sky. So he's completely... He's overcome. A, overcome. Right. Exactly. You can't... She's a power that you cannot resist. It's right? like Gilligan with ginger. <laughs> it's exactly like Gilligan with ginger. How's right? that for a deep cut? That's right. He just became kind of a, a, a stuttering mess in her right. presence, right? right? That's Vulcan. <laughs> Venus felt it and smiled to herself. She knows. And Vulcan, chained by eternal love. Why reach so far back for reasons? What happened to your faith in me, goddess? If you had been as anxious then, it would have been right for me to arm the Trojans. Neither the Father Almighty nor fate forbade that Troy stand or Priam live ten years more. Now, if your mind is set on war, all the care I can promise in my craft, all that can be done with iron or electrum, all that fire and air can avail, well, stop praying. And just trust your powers. Okay. So, your so what wish, do you think? Your wish is my command. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So what do you think? Is this uh, is this persuasive? Uh, persuasive in terms of what? What well, uh, the, is this a sufficient motivation for Vulcan to forget all the past infidelity and you know produce the armor just because Venus smiles at him and touches him on the shoulder? Well, I think we're supposed to see he's completely under her power at that moment. It reminds me of again to, in the Iliad. Remember when Hera bor- borrows the the belt. Of uh, of Aphrodite, mm-hmm. and in that moment she he she becomes Aphrodite, and then she seduces Zeus, and Zeus is completely helpless. Right, right, and he sees her and he compares her uh, to all these other women that he's that he slept with. Right, uh, not good, not good. But um, I mean, I mean, such is the ridiculousness of that scene. I think we're supposed to see that that's how far under the spell of Aphrodite that he, yeah. that he is. So that's what I see here. It's like he's. I'm surprised though that I could that you as an academic, mm-hmm. full blooded, aren't looking for other things that aren't there. Is it just this basic? It's like, you know, a basic impulse? I think I'm, I'm part of it is just I'm, I'm frustrated. You know, all the stuff is like Heracles is related to who and, and his father of who and Caucasus. Is, is, right. I'm so overwhelmed by that right. that um, I'm I'm ready to accept just kind of, the, I'm, I'm ready to apply Occam's razor here. Okay. The simplest answer is the best one. All right. Okay. There we go. But then there's a reversal of the tale, as told in the Odyssey, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Venus dupes Vulcan with her wiles and, uh, and and sexuality. So it's we see them as I don't know if I would call them a happy couple momentarily. Momentarily, but you know, again, I, here I have no idea. Does Does Virgil want us to think of of that that scene amongst the Phaeacians? Wants to think of know. that affair? Um, it's I, I don't know. I don't know. So well, one of the really fascinating things about Greco-Roman mythology is that there's, to me at least, is there's always a reset button. Mm. Right next door, right? Mm -hmm. Until the time of Plato, I keep saying this, but I think it's an important lesson. Mm -hmm. Until the time of Plato, nobody seemed to really expect consistency in the story of these gods and goddesses. Exactly, yeah. So this relationship was going great guns, and then, you know, you turn the page, and it's as though it's completely forgotten. Right. And now they're behaving in quite a different way. Yeah. Not different from their character, but different from their history. Yes. It's as though they... They lead a, a new life each day. Yes. You just press the reset button. Right. We don't really think of deity like that at all. No, 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 no. I see that in, in my myth class too, is that, you know, the students, they want to know what's the real version, right? Yeah. And so and we have that. So yeah, like speaking of Plato, it's so like in his symposium, they're arguing, wait, we have two Aphrodites here. We got right. to figure this out. Right. Where before that, it's like, no, we don't. Nobody seems to care. Nobody cares. Mm-hmm. Right? It's so interesting. It is. It's so interesting. So yeah. Um, Maybe you know, in that spirit, you know, kind of asking these kinds of questions, we can just kind of just let that let that kind of stuff okay. slide. Yeah. All right. So he makes the shield, mm-hmm. and what's on the shield? Well, there are several moments from Roman history on the shield, but uh, Dave, why don't you get us into it with some Virgil followed by some Lombardo? Yes. So it goes like this: Line six twenty six. Illic res itelas Romano rumque triumphos. Haud tigna rus venturri quinscius aiwi, fecerat ignipotens illic genus omne futurdrae, sturpis ab abscanio pugnata pugnata 
Quinordinabella. Oh, I got that one out with difficulty. Fekaradet Wirdi Fetama Wortisen Antro. Procubuissa Lupam Geminos Week Ubera Kirkum. Luderependentis Puros at Lambda Matrem. And the last one, Impawidosia Lamterati Kerwika Reflexa. Fantastic. Thank you. Which sounds, thanks to Lombardo, goes something like this On it, meaning the shield, the fire god had prophetically wrought the future of Italy. And Roman triumphs in the coming ages, every generation in order, still to be born from the stock of Ascanius and all the wars they would fight. On it he made the she-wolf lying in Mars' green cave, with the twin boys playing as they sucked fearlessly at their mother's breast. Her sculpted head turned back to nuzzle each in turn and lick them into shape. Close by he put Rome and the Sabine women carried off lawlessly from the seated crowds in the great circus games. And then sudden war between the sons of Romulus and aged Tatius with his stern curace. Next, peace between them. The same kings standing armed before Jupiter's altar, holding shallow bowls as they made their treaty over a sacrificed sow. The roof of Romulus's palace bristled with fresh thatch. Ooh, that's a tongue twister. That is. Fresh thatch. Fresh thatch, yeah. That is tough to say, yes. So we got um, some interesting things going on here, right? So it's a... It's um we got Romulus and Remus yep. and the She Wolf. We have the capture of the Sabine women. Mm-hmm. We have kind of scenes of kind of war followed by um, treaty and peace. Yes, um, and then kind of going beyond what you translated right. there. Uh, we have the death of Metius Fufetius. Mm-hmm. Uh, the siege of Rome by Porsena is Who, also shown. Was an Etruscan? Uh, yes, right, right. right. That, that may be historical. That's probably pure history there. Porsena. Mm-hmm. The other things may or may not be legendary, depending on your perspective. Yes. Uh, we have the the Gauls attack on on Rome. Yes. Was a uh, fourth century, I believe. Three ninety. Three ninety. Yep. The date that sticks in my mind. Yep. Saved by the geese. That's right. The honking geese of Juno alerted those on the Capitolium right. to the arrival of the Gauls. Yes. And then uh, we have the Battle of Actium. which so we skip ahead. A, a lot. 360 years to right. 31 BC. And then the last image is in the center of the, of, the, uh, of, the, of the shield, the peaceful city with Augustus Caesar standing triumphant in the center. Okay, so where is the revisionist secret Virgilian undercut, right? Is there... Something in the depiction of the shield that Augustus is really a creep and a villain. I don't think I don't see. I'm it. being facetious, right? Exactly, right. There's there's nothing here. Okay, there's nothing here. Um, I mean, aside from yeah, to get to Augustus, you got to plow through a lot of war and siege and right. and uh, and and blood. But I mean, such as would be the kind of like what else would you expect? Right, right. So, um, if we compare this to Achilles' shield, yes, um, do you have, do you prefer one shield over the other? Definitely Achilles' shield, yeah, without a doubt. I think the themes in Achilles' shield are so much broader. Yes, and there's so much more humanity. Mm-hmm. I can't believe I'm saying this. Yeah, because, I can't believe it either. Right, <laughs> because uh, Virgil is, you know, he's got that great sunt lacrimae re rem uh, re rumen. How does it go? You know, it's it's in uh, book one here. There are t- tears for things, and human suffering touches the mind. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't have the whole line, but he's such a human poet, mm-hmm. a- and yet I find the shield of, Achille- of Achilles in the Iliad, book eighteen, so much more human than anything Virgil does here. Agreed, agreed. Um, I, I'm actually I'm I'm half surprised that you said that because I, I would have as I was looking this over, I thought I think Dave is going to like. The the straightforwardness of Achilles' shield because I'm basically a narrow-minded, unimaginative person. That's not what I'm saying at all. But <laughs> um, I know that you you don't have a lot of you don't have a lot of um, patience for kind of the endless rabbit trails of possible meanings of this or that, right? Well, uh, we've talked about this before, but I guess I believe there is an objective truth about these things, and mm. while I don't always know what it is, I can't you know, let go of the desire to have it. That, yeah. That's the thing. Gotcha. I gotcha. And I remember the line. Okay. Sunt lacrimae re ret mentem mortalia tungunt. Okay. Here there are tears for things and mortal suffering touches the mind. Uh, yeah. Sorry. Right. And so you don't, you don't see any of that kind of uh, humanity in these, in the scenes on Aeneas's shield. Not to the same extent as on the shield of Achilles in the Iliad. Right. So I think the inclusion of the capture or the rape of the Sabine women, mm-hmm. and even the fact that it's described as lawless and terrible, mm-hmm. you know, that's that's humane. That that show in the sense that it shows uh, Virgil has uncertainty about the troubled past of the you know the Roman people. They've done some awful things. Right. But the setting on the shield of Achilles is just so much broader. Because it has these natural elements. It's yes. got the, the ring of ocean banding the whole shield. Right. And there's something so compelling about the, 
the two different uh, cities at the center of Achilles' shield, mm-hmm. right? The city at peace and the city at war. Right. Plus the pastoral elements of the the shepherding and the dancing and the agriculture. Right. It's just right. so human. Right. I've always I've always liked the reading of Achilles' shield that well, one of the things I like about Achilles' shield is that I think the pastoral and peaceful stuff is surprising. Like, yes. It, this doesn't seem very... No, it's going on a war shield. Right. It, it doesn't seem very, uh, you know, martial. No, right? it's like putting a ribbon on a gun or something. Right. And so I've, I've always liked the reading that uh, that um, you know, what Achilles there is really lifting up is the um, the fate that he... He, the, the path that he, he didn't take. Oh, right? he's, he's all the things offered to him in book nine. Yes. The bribes, you can go home and rule all these countries and right. grow to be an old man and see your grandchildren. Exactly right. Right. So that in that uh, the, uh, the other part of the, uh, you know, the Achilles fate or his choice, however you want to right. read it. And so, you know, he chooses the, the short heroic life. Um, and so the shield represents kind of everything that he mm. has lost. It just makes it so much more poignant. Exactly. It's so, it's so tragic. It's so, it's so very human. And he has to carry that into battle. Right. Right. Literally. I mean, I don't think it explains everything. I mean, I think there's elements in Achilles Shield that are still very puzzling, but that's one of the things I like about it because it, right. it can pull you in different directions. What I don't like about the Shield of Aeneas is it's way too on the nose. Okay. Like, uh, Augustus in the center, I mean, I get it. Okay. But, and then surrounded by these, these it's it is chronologically leading up to him. It just seems a little, okay. Hmm. All right. It's, can it, you expand on that? I just, I would, I want to. What would have made the shield of Aeneas better and more like the shield of Achilles in um, your mind? Something, well, like, like if you're to compare to Achilles' shield, um, you have um, a picture of a sheep farm, a dancing floor where young men and women are dancing and courting. Some kind of curveball right. on Aeneas' shield that would um, allow it for a little bit more nuance. Something the, that, the death of Cicero, well, maybe? Well, I think, I think. Put I, that on the shield? Well, no, I think what I, what I don't like is that it comes back to kind of my problem with Aeneas. None of these things tell us anything personally about Aeneas. A lot of the stuff on Achilles' shield, if we connect it to kind of his fate or what he's lost, mm. is deeply personal to him. And I don't see any of that. So for Aeneas, he's just a cipher for Roman destiny. He's a he's an action figure with with items sold separately. Mm. So and and you don't care for it. I don't care for that. I mean, mm. this I mean this is not a critique of of the epic epic as a whole. I mean, I love the epic and I, I love a lot of the places where there is this kind of nuance. I just don't think this is one of them. The audience is going to hear critique. You know that. Mm-hmm. That's all they're going to hear oh, from oh, you. Well, that, that, that's fine. They're going to hear Winkle doesn't like the Aeneid because. Ver, uh, Aeneas is simply the carrier of Roman destiny. He's an action figure. What is it? Uh, accessories sold separately? Yes. Right. Yeah, exactly. Well, all I got to say is come at me. Okay. Step. Well, all right. All right. <laughs> but I like these elements of detail on the shield of Achilles, which Aeneas' shield seems to lack. Mm-hmm. A field being plowed for the third time. So there are notions of the futility of human life. Yeah. Oh, as, yeah. as well as the wedding that is portrayed on Achilles' shield. Mm-hmm. And um, something that he will never have, right? Right. Now these these are uh, incredible touches, and they're both they're, they are both ecfrases, right? They, yes. They both kind of come alive in their description. Yeah. Can you yeah. define that term a little bit? In ecfrases, so the word itself just means a speaking out. Yeah. But it's um, it often refers to the description of a of a of a work of art, and then in the description. It kind of leaves the bounds of the inanimate and into the animate. Very well said. Yeah. I'd like to point out a couple of other of these we've talked about before on the podcast, and that is the doors on the Palace of the Sun in Ovid's Metamorphoses. Oh, yeah. yeah Those yeah, yeah. are highly decorated and ornamented with mythological themes. Also in Ovid's Metamorphoses, the tapestry that Arachne weaves when she's in competition with Athena exactly. is an ekphrasis, and it has all of the crimes of the gods. Mm-hmm. And, of course, we've been to Florence— and the golden doors, right, that Giberti um, sculpted yes. on the uh, baptistry, right? right that right. is a direct descendant of these different ideas. Without a doubt, right. So if you were to compare them as ecphrases, again, Homer has it all over Virgil. And not just because he's first. No, 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 no. It's, but it, because as a work of art, I would say it is uh, innately superior. Poor Virgil. Poor wow. Virgil. He dropped. I think he dropped the ball a little bit here. That's fine. Okay. Right. Um, we could always use the excuse. Well, this would have been one of those things he would have polished up had he lived. Yeah. I don't think so. You know, one thing that uh, to try to contemporize this. Back when you and I were just young lads, mm-hmm. <clears throat> so so many years ago. Yes. When you bought uh, first uh, vinyl albums, and then you bought cassette tapes, and then you bought CDs. Mm-hmm. Right. The album liners and the CD covers. There was a lot of thought put into how those looked. Yes. And they could be highly evocative. I remember 
uh, enjoying that in some ways almost as much as the music. Yes. The images and the pictures. And what was the artist trying to say about the musical content, you know, by this cover? Right. Now, everything being digital, it's so much more convenient. I can listen to anything I want from any era. Right. But I really can't tell you what the cover of these things look like. Right. That's completely lost. Right. Lost and there's, art. There's right. no connection between the sound and the image. Right. And I'm trying to connect that to this. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. The image of the shield is like an album cover. Mm, mm. And it's telling you, this is the music the hero's playing. Right. Is that a stretch? No, I don't think it's a stretch at all. So if I, if I were looking at it through this, the, the, the Anissa shield is not an album that I'd want to pick up and throw on the turntable. You would pass that right by at the record say, store? I might listen to track one or two, but right. I don't know how deep I'd get into it. Yes, but uh, the shield of um, Achilles, right? Oh, it's like Dark Side of the Moon. It just jumps. That's Pink Floyd, right? It is, yeah. And is there a moon on the cover? I can't remember. No, there's a prism oh, right. with the, the light going through it and turning a rainbow. It's one of the most famous album covers. Well, that's how little I know. <laughs> you, you'd grab that right off the shelf, oh, you yeah. know, when you stack the records, you know, you got to page through them like giant index cards right. or something. Exactly. But So to, 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 just to pursue the Pink Floyd thing, right? right so you, the album is called Dark Side of the Moon, right? You might expect, oh, there'd be some sort of lunar imagery on it, but there's not. And that's what makes it even more intriguing. Achille- it's incongruous. Isn't there a, like a 15-minute song on that album? I think there is. Yeah, it's right. been a while since I've okay. put it on. But like the Shield of Achilles, right? oh, pick this up. I'm going to expect war and, and, uh, war and death and, and, and peace and, and violence. Um, no, you get so much more. Yeah. You pick up Aeneas' shield, oh, it's about what you'd expect. It's a um, it's a history lesson. It is. It's an embossed history lesson. Right. And not appealing to you for that reason. No. I wonder if there are any um, artistic representations. There must be, mm-hmm. right? Renaissance paintings and so forth, attempts to show oh, yeah. the uh, Shield of Achilles. I was clicking around on Google Images yesterday. There, there are some, um, and I couldn't tell you if they were like Renaissance paintings or just uh, people things that people more recently have tried to kind of put it together. Anything that you liked? Um, not really, uh, mm. but the, the Shield of Aeneas is a lot easier to depict and kind of organize than Achilles' shield. Oh, yeah. Right, right? So, I mean, that's part of the ekphrasis. I mean, the yeah. Achilles' shield is a living thing, mm. right, which can't really be grounded in, in you know, static mm. uh, media. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Hey, Dave, I believe we're up against it. Yeah, we are out of time. We I are. think the International Shield Workers Union uh, <laughs> is coming in to start their crafting here in the vomitorium. Yes. Right. And I, think, I don't know if they're necessarily happy with us. Well, are, are any union workers happy? That, that's true. They're grumpy. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Here we go. I veered political. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm sure they're very, very happy. So. So they're going to come in, they're going to uh, carve out their wooden forms. Yes. They're going to take their bronze and their copper and their gold and silver and pound it over these wooden forms with their little ductile hammers and so forth. They've got their anvils. Yes. And their, yes, and their bellows. Right. And they're going to huff and puff and polish and make some shields. Exactly. Right. So it gets hot and sweaty. I want to get out of here. I want to get out of here yeah. for sure. But before we get out of here, what do we need to do? Well, um, you want to say a couple things about the moss method? I do. Yeah. Right. Just a couple things. Number one, if you want to study Greek... And number two, this is how you should do it. Okay. And number three, go to mossmethod.com. Check out the program. Got some new recruits this week. I guess number four, you can participate in weekly Moffice Hours on Friday morning. We get together and we read Greek. You can even read the passage from Iliad 18 about the Shield of Achilles if you'd like. That's in there? Awesome. I cover anything. Excellent. It's a no-holds-barred Greek time. Fantastic. Right. And how about LLPSI? Yes, if you want to go from little knowledge of Latin to a lot. Yes. <laughs> I take you what I call ab initio, from the ground up. And uh, we start right out with uh, the Lingua Latina Per Se Illustrata, Hans Orberg's Latin textbook. And uh, so this is a class I put together. It is more than 30 different video lessons, each 30 minutes to an hour in length. I've got four fine students in the studio And they're going through the textbook, and I'm teaching them Latin so you can learn from their successes, learn from their mistakes. They're charming people who Hmm. laugh and smile and make fun of me a little bit. Oh, that sounds great. (laughs) And still pass the class. (laughs) And uh, I think it is a phenomenal value, honestly. There there may be better Latin programs out there, I can't say, but I'm very confident there's not a better program out there at this price. Fantastic. And they can find this where? Latinperdm.com slash LLPSI. Fantastic. As always, we got some other people to thank. Yes. Uh, Mishka, our, our great engineer who puts this all together. 
Um, uh, Ken at Tam- breakneck speed. At breakneck speed. The, may I say? The turnaround is always impressive. It's impressive. We got uh, Scott Vinzen and Ken Tamplin to thank for the wonderful music that you mm-hmm. hear throughout the episode. Mm-hmm. Um, There's a couple guys that know a lot about album covers. That's very, very true. And yeah. Scott can play and Ken can sing. Yes. Ken can play too. Yeah, he can. He yeah. really, really can. Some of his flamenco stuff is phenomenal. You'd really like it. I, have, I didn't even know he I'll played that style. I'll send you a couple tracks. Yep. Fantastic. Spanish guitar. Right. Um, what else, Dave? What else we got? Well, we need to, uh, in addition to thanking people, we need to tell the audience that if you would like to leave a review or to subscribe, go to adnauseum.com. We would like to get some more reviews on the Apple uh, iTunes podcast site. Yeah. You say something nice, say something not so nice. It's up to you. Yeah. If you'd like to pick up a T-shirt that's ad nauseum themed, we have these wonderful uh, T-shirts that show Hercules lifting up the world or wrestling with a lion mm-hmm. with a nice tag from the Renaissance scholar Erasmus. What is that, Jeff? That's quite nocent, docent. Which means? Which means uh, that which, well, very loosely, that which doesn't kill you makes you stronger. That's correct. Right? You, that, that which harms teaches. That's right. You could get yourself one of those. If you'd like to contact us for some viewer mail, write to jeff at adnauseum.com. Don't forget the V. Or, or to dave at adnauseum.com. Also, again, do not forget that V. And Jeff, what's on tap for next week? What, are, we, are we diving into book nine? Or are we gonna, we're we, going to go into book nine. Okay, we are. So here's okay. the plan as, as I envision it, okay. at least. You can, of course, veto it. We'll do one episode on book nine, and then we're going to veer off into something a little bit different. That sounds great to me, too. All right. And Jeff, I believe that you have uh, today's gustatory parting shot. I do. This comes from one Terry Pratchett from a book called Moving Pictures. Yes. And I, I like this because mm-hmm. there's kind of an academic, uh, you know, collegiate <laughs> yes. theme here where the chair and the dean are exchanging, can we call them niceties? I guess so. It's really kind of disgusting. It's kind of gross, right? All right. I'm goes, glad that you're reading it. It goes like this. Have a chocolate covered raisin, he said. They look like rat droppings, said the chair. The dean peered at them in the gloom. So that's it, he said. The bag fell on the floor a minute ago, and I thought there seemed rather a lot. Oh, Oh, gross. Thanks for listening. Thanks. Thanks.